Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, I want to welcome you to the Loving Liberty Show, and I have a very special guest joining me today. I want to welcome Alexander C.R. Hammond. He is actually joining us from London today, so I guess good evening to you, Alex, and, and thanks so much for being my guest today. Hi, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I have heard a great deal about Brexit over the last couple of years, and and I have to admit, I've been a little bit detached, mainly because I felt like, well, I don't really have a dog in that fight, but everything built to this uh, crescendo last week, and it's it's official. Brexit has happened, um, so I guess my first question for you then, Alex, is uh, did the sky fall, as we were assured it would, upon this, this taking place? No, it seems everyone is doing just fine. Um, contrary to all the predictions, the recession hasn't come. Uh, the apocalypse is still at bay. Um, we haven't run out of food and medicine just yet. Um, but yeah, it's been a huge three or four years trying to get this over the line. Um and it was only really since the general election last month that uh, Parliament um, now has a conservative majority who are now backing Brexit. And that's why it has happened now as opposed to two years ago or a year ago when it really should have done, happened. Now, you are a policy advisor for the Institute of Economic Affairs. And I, I just want to ask, was, did this affect what you do in, in terms of, of your day-to-day work? Well, yeah, my day-to-day work uh, focuses heavily on the ideas sphere, uh, writing a lot of articles about different political issues. Um, So, yeah, this has been a huge part of my life for many years. I even remember back in university, back in 2013, 2014, uh, talking about this, doing debates about this. And then as I entered my career, working on it, um, whether it be in D.C. where I used to live and work um, or now. And, yeah, it's just been such a huge part of every of everyone in my kind of circle's life. And to think it's finally coming to an end after a huge amount of effort is uh, quite nice. <laughs> Alex, I'm, I'm going to ask you to walk me through uh, a short history of the European Union, or at least uh, Britain becoming part of the European Union. And, and I'm doing this more for my own sake. My audience is probably far better informed than I am. But uh, how long ago did the UK become part of the European Union? Yeah, so... I think what's important to remember about the European Union, it's not this one stagnant political entity. Um, It's ever-evolving, and one of the key principles of it is it's an ever-closer union, which means over time it continues to become closer and closer. Um, The UK first joined back in 1973, um, and back then it was the European Economic Community, essentially a big free trade area. And we were very much for it. In 1975, we even actually had a referendum about whether we should be stay part of this free trade area. And we voted overwhelmingly 65% in favour of staying. However, over time, it became more political. The, the Maastricht Treaty in 1992 is when the political aspect became part of it. And suddenly, hundreds and thousands of regulations on everything from a power usage and toasters um, to what defined beer uh, suddenly comes pumping out of Brussels. And that 
it was basically from the late 90s is when the first Eurosceptic movement began to grow in the UK. Um, and in 2015, when uh, UKIP, the UK Independence Party, who Nigel Farage used to run, were doing quite well at the time, that's when David Cameron then went to Europe and asked to try and make some concessions so he had a bit more independence. Um, this failed, uh, or he came back and the concessions just weren't good enough. Uh, and then over time, this then led to a referendum, which everyone thought uh, was never going to pass. Everyone always assumed it was going to be remain one. Uh, the entire establishment, the, uh, David Cameron at the time, George Osborne, um, many people, George Osborne being the chancellor at the time, were against it and just couldn't, in, couldn't view that we'd possibly leave. But then on the 23rd of June 2016, we voted 52% in favour. Um, and that's what's led to where we are now. Although that decision, okay, so Britain, you know, you've achieved a, a majority that says, yes, we are ready to, to leave the European Union. But the European Union wasn't going to take that laying down, at least from the sounds of it. It sounds like they delayed and fought it every way that they could. What were some of the ways that they uh, prevented that from taking place sooner? Well, actually, what, what I'd say is one the main reason why it took so long after the vote uh, on the 23rd of June 2016 was that David Cameron stepped down immediately. There had been no plans uh, for what the UK would do post-Brexit from a government perspective because they thought it was so unlikely. Um, that led to Theresa May stepping forward and becoming prime minister. Um, and the main issue of why it's taken so long is parliament between the years of 2016 to 2000 and or since the referendum last uh, two months ago in December um, was three quarters remain. So the vast majority of our members of parliament were Remainers who didn't want to leave the EU. So that meant every time there was a Brexit vote coming through or a Brexit bill or anything that could kind of move it along down, down the road, it got delayed and blocked. Um, and that's why in December, when the Conservatives got an 80 majority and Boris Johnson made every Conservative MP agreed to back his Brexit deal. Uh, that's why it's then passed. So I'd actually say the EU, especially in regards to Article 50, which is when we decided to leave, you, we, we put in something called Article 50, which means you have two years to then decide, um, or sorry, we have a two-year period before we then leave. But because the parliament was stopping so many Brexit bills getting through, we had to delay that. So initially we were meant to leave in March last year, then it got moved to April the 12th, then it got moved to October the 31st, and then it got moved again to January 31st, which was uh, last Friday. So I'd actually say it was in a large part the UK parliament was preventing it rather than the EU. Um, however, going forward, the EU has a huge, or has, is very much trying to, uh, dictate future relations between the UK and the EU um, with any more potential free trade agreements we may have. Alex, I so appreciate you giving me some of that background. That's something I hadn't realized. I didn't realize that it was the British Parliament that was actually one of the major obstacles in, in, in making this happen. <clears throat> what, what was the thinking in the mind of the, uh, the average citizen 
in your land that, uh, you know, when it came to, to Brexit, um, obviously politicians kind of have a vested interest where, where bureaucracy is concerned. I could see them, you know, just from a job, uh, you know, protecting their job point of view, wanting to, to keep things as, as they were. But what was the average citizen, uh, what did they stand to gain through Brexit? Well, I think the average citizen viewed Brexit, well, initially it was very close, 52 to 48, uh, leave remain. So there was a fair bit of decisiveness amongst people. Um, but the average citizen, I really think, by by last year, they just wanted to get it done. There had been so much delay and dither, and it meant that politicians were focusing all their time on Brexit and not on things like policing or schools or actually domestic issues that they care about far more uh, than leaving the EU. But what the average citizen potentially gains from Brexit in the long term is that we have a direct say, we can have a direct say over the laws we actually make. Um, in the EU, the way the, the European Parliament is made up, all of the UK members of the European Parliament could actually reject the law. But if other uh, member states agree on it, it would still then become law in the UK. So we n- now have a chance to kind of make our own future. And if anything, it means parliamentarians are now more accountable because they can't just blame the EU. Um, so that's one aspect. And then the other aspect is there's huge potential for us to create more trade agreements with the rest of the world, um, to do so with the US, uh, potentially China, Japan. Um, and they are currently underway. And that's what we're going to spend the next year doing as we enter the transition period. Okay, that's a wonderful explanation. And for those just joining us, we're talking with Alexander C.R. Hammond. He is policy advisor to the Director General for Institute of Economic Affairs in London. And Alex, um, you you used the word accountable. When we come back after the break, uh, let's talk a little bit about why it's so important that uh, those who go forth to represent the citizenry as members of parliament or in, in other positions of authority must have that accountability. Um, Nigel Farage gave such an incredible farewell speech in the European Parliament last week. Uh, we can touch on that. I want to get to your reaction to that. It, it was uh, it was truly a, a moment for, for those who, who study great moments or great speeches in history. This is one you should probably include. And we will take a very quick break. We'll be back right after these commercial messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My special guest today is Alexander C.R. Hammond. He is joining me actually from London, England, and we're talking about Brexit. And Alex, I, I so appreciate you walking me through some of the history behind uh, this this historic event that took place last Friday. Although uh, during the break, you were telling me that uh, even though officially now the, the Brexit is uh, has begun, the transition period has begun, Practically, did, did the laws change overnight, or is there is there a period in which a transition has to take place? Yeah, so what happened last Friday is we entered something called a transition period. So what that means is 
the UK is now no longer a member state of EU. We have no members of the European Parliament. That's why you saw Nigel Farage give a speech uh, last week. Uh, we don't have an EU commissioner and we have no judges in the European Court of Justice. But none of our laws have currently changed. Until the 31st of December this year, we're in a transition period whereby think of it as it's just an opportunity for us to create trade agreements with many countries around the world, including the EU, America, um, and kind of decide what regulations and laws we can change um, once we actually leave. So currently, our laws are exactly the same as before, and they're aligned with the EU. But if this is just an opportunity for us to start properly planning uh, trade deals and uh, various ways we can change from current legislation. Something you had mentioned that really piqued my curiosity uh, in the first segment, you had talked about how uh, one of the downsides of being part of the European Union was if there were a law, for instance, that other member states really felt strongly about, they said, yeah, this is what we want, but say that uh, maybe it didn't play so well in Britain. If enough of them voted that, well, but this is what we want, it would still become law, even even if uh, your citizenry didn't want it. Can you give me an example of, of maybe some of the laws that that helped uh, to to build support for the Brexit movement? So I think one uh, quite big one is in regards to our fisheries. Is being part of the EU meant that countries uh, from Europe had access to? English waters had a lot of quotas on on different types of fish they could cap, capture. Um, and for, in some cases, that was really a detriment to English fishermen. Um, and going forward, uh, the Boris is trying to create a free trade agreement with the EU. Um, however, he's said he's not willing to accept any of their laws and regulations and no regulatory um, alignment in order to create a free trade area. However, right now, the Brussels is currently saying in order to get a free trade area, um, they will want fishing rights to UK waters still. They will want uh, to be able to enforce the terms of trade. Uh, and they'd also want the UK to accept EU laws on competition policy and subsidies and social protection. Um, this I find this quite unbelievable because when you create trade agreements with other countries, you don't expect them to align with you on every law or most laws that you have. Imagine if we were to create a, the UK was to create a trade agreement with the US, but we said, oh, no, we must have exactly the same social protection policies or we're going to have access to your fisheries. It's just it that's just not a norm in uh, trade uh, negotiations um however the eu has got used to that with us being part of a member state um but boris has been quite firm in saying well we're not going to accept us and if even though we do really uh, need a good trade agreement with the eu if they refuse to give us one um we're definitely going to branch outwards to look at the us uh, and other emerging markets around the world yeah, it's it's the whole concept of self-determination. And, and uh, you know, maybe it's just because I have a little bit of a rebel in me. But uh, when, when Brexit actually took place, and especially after I watched Nigel Farage's uh, f- uh, farewell speech in the European uh, Parliament, uh, there was a part of me going right on. You know, this is this is standing up and, and 
saying we will we will take responsibility for ourselves in the direction we will go from here. And the perception I had just as a as a, you know, detached bystander was that uh, there was some resentment on, on the part of at least some within the, the European uh, Union. Is it safe to say there, there were there were member states that were sad to see Britain go because they they felt that there was an advantage in, in I don't know, having access to your resources, your waters or, or, or something else? Yeah, I think a, f- a fair few member states, um, and especially their MEPs, were sad to see the EU go. Um, remembering that most MEPs are Europhiles. Um, if your job is to be a member of the European Parliament, it, you'd kind of expect for, for a lot of people to have a passion for the European project. Um, that obviously wasn't the case with Nigel Farage's UKIP or the Brexit party um, and a few others around Europe. But I think what that speech represents is for the first time, rather than the EU growing ever closer and and more members being part of it, is the UK, which is the second biggest economy in Europe, leaving. Um, And I think there is a worry amongst a fair few member states for other countries could follow, uh, potentially the Netherlands uh, and Italy is also, there's a lot of potential. Um, and from an economic perspective, it, we must remember the EU economy is not only shrinking in regards to their share of global GDP already, uh, today it accounts for about 15% of global, global GDP, um, but by 2050, it will be about 9, 9% of all the estimates. Um, and the UK leaving the uk economy is bigger than 18 eu countries put together wow um so to think that we're a small country especially when the uh, eu negotiations are going to happen with the uk about a trade area um would be faulty because we are the fifth largest economy in the world um and i think we do both both parties want a good relationship going forward well, and you answered one of the questions that I was actually looking to ask, and that was, you know, are other states going to follow? I, I guess time will tell. Um, talk to me about how does the future look now uh, that uh, that Brexit has occurred? What are some of the things that uh, you are looking forward to in the days ahead as it relates to, to your own country? So I think going forward, what I'm looking forward to is creating these free trade agreements with places like the US, uh, reconnecting with countries like Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Um, And also a lot of my work focuses on uh, Africa. And rather than having preferential agreements with, with different African countries, we can do very good free trade agreements with them on on a more reciprocal ground. Um, And by 2050, the vast, the only two EU countries that will be in the top 10 global economies will probably be Germany and the UK. The rest will be places like India, USA, China, even Indonesia, Japan. So being able to uh, do trade agreements and uh, connect with uh, 94% of the world's population that lives outside of the EU, uh, I think is a great potential for us. Is there anything that you wish more people on this side of the pond understood about uh, about either um, your your 
country's politics or the the Brexit event that has just taken place? I mean, we have a lot of news sources talking about it, but I feel so much better informed from just a few minutes talking with you than all the news stories that I've been following, you know, for the last couple of years. What do you wish more people understood? Oh, thank you. Um, I think one thing I'd really like to get across is that Brexit and Trump are not the same. Um, I've written about this before, but so often in American media, and I know because I lived there, um, Brexit would be compared to Trump. But Brexiteers wanted to leave the EU so we could do free trade agreements with the rest of the world. We wanted, uh, rather than a trade war with China, we want a trade deal with them. Um, We want to open ourselves up for immigration from not just EU countries, which we're currently obliged to, but other countries from perhaps reconnect with our commonwealth um, so it actually means more races will be able to come in so brexit is part of creating a global free trading britain whereas the trump phenomenon tends to be trying to close off america to the outside world and i'd say that's the biggest takeaway uh, that i'd like american listeners to know alex i have so enjoyed our conversation thanks again for being my guest and i hope that we have a chance to talk again soon great thanks for having me All right, we are back. Welcome to the Loving Liberty program. So glad you could join me this afternoon and uh, wanted to talk about something that uh, hopefully you get the opportunity to experience, and that is jury duty. Oh, I know. Now, you're, that's like wishing illness on somebody or wishing some kind of misfortune, or at least that's how a lot of people tend to see it. I used to think that way, and, and, and you know, I... Trying to remember when I received my first jury summons. I think it was back in the summer of '92, if I'm not mistaken, and and I was not happy about it. I was bummed. I oh man, this is going to take time, and they want me to go up to Boise, up to the federal courthouse up there, and I don't have time for this. And I hope I don't get called in, and I didn't. So I was relieved. But you have to understand that was a point in time before I understood how essential the jury is to prevent. Injustice. And this is not to suggest that, uh, you know, every case that goes before a jury is uh, is going to be, you know, something that they they should uh, acquit. But the biggest thing that I've learned that has changed my thinking about uh, the, the jury duty quandary is. You have more power as a juror than you think. In fact, if, if you really want to stop and think about it, the most powerful entity in any courtroom is not the judge. The judge is there as a referee, but it's the jurors who are there representing the people. And once you make that connection, things become a lot easier. So when I see stories like the one that I saw on Reason Magazine recently, it's a case, Michigan v. Wood, and it's a crackdown on jury nullification. And it's something that uh, I want to bring to your attention. What you do with this information, totally up to you. But uh, if this is not a violation of the First Amendment... I don't know what is. So here's what's at stake here. Damon Root is the author, and he starts with a quote from uh, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, Schenck v. Pro-Choice Network of Western New York back in 1997. Quote, leafleting and commenting on matters of public concern are classic forms of speech that lie at the heart of the First Amendment. And speech in public areas is at its most protected On public sidewalks, a prototypical example of a traditional public forum. 
That's what the U.S. Supreme Court said in that Shank v. Pro-Choice Network of Western New York decision. Unfortunately, the Michigan Court of Appeals has taken a dimmer view of what the First Amendment protects. In Michigan v. Wood, a case which took place two years ago, the court upheld the criminal conviction of Keith Eric Wood for handing out pro-jury nullification pamphlets while standing on the public sidewalk outside his local courthouse. Now the Michigan Supreme Court is weighing Wood's appeal. I guess the matter started back in 2015 when Wood took to the sidewalk in front of the courthouse in Big Rapids, Michigan, and distributed pamphlets he had obtained from the Fully Informed Jury Association, FIJA.org, just in case you're interested. You may and should vote your conscience, the pamphlets told prospective jurors. You cannot be forced to obey a juror's oath. Well, two of the people who took the pamphlets had been summoned to court that day for jury duty, and that led authorities to bring Wood up on charges of jury tampering, a crime defined by the state as willfully attempting to influence the decision of a juror in any case by argument or persuasion other than as part of the proceedings in open court in the trial of the case. That seems like a stretch to me, but that's what they ran with. The Michigan Court of Appeals rendered its judgment on Wood's fate three years later, pushing back against the argument that Wood's conduct was pure speech and that the state has no compelling interest in preventing a person from distributing educational pamphlets to potential jurors in public spaces. Now, Chief Judge Christopher Murray ruled that his behavior was precisely the type of speech states have a compelling interest in regulating through validly enacted statutes. Well, in a friend of the court brief submitted to the Michigan Supreme Court on Wood's behalf, Cato Institute legal scholars Clark Neely and Jay Schweikert offer a persuasive diagnosis of that ruling's constitutional ills. Their brief says the state not only lacks a compelling interest in censoring the speech at issue here, but rather has no legitimate interest at all in preventing people like Mr. Wood from educating their fellow citizens about the injustice-preventing role that juries have played in our system of government for more than eight centuries. End quote. Exactly. See, we're not talking here about a violent thug out there menacing jurors, rather, or mean-mugging them as they walk into the courthouse in hopes of gaining an acquittal. We're talking about a civically-minded citizen exercising a bedrock constitutional right in a public forum. So as the article says, there's no good justification for the censorship. The Michigan Supreme Court should overrule the lower court's judgment and wipe Wood's speech-suppressing conviction from the books. So says Damon Root, senior editor at Reason, and the author of Overruled the Long War for Control of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's something worth considering, because the chances are pretty good at some point in your life you are going to be called up for jury duty. Now, before I understood the, the true power of the jury, I'll admit it was not something that I would have looked forward to. Now, it's, you know, if I see a jury summons notice appear in my mailbox, it's like, yes, not that I'm, I'm going to have, you know, I, it's not like I'm going to avoid inconvenience. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to require time off work. It's probably going to require the stress of traveling and being somewhere on time. I don't care. There's a larger issue at stake here. And I've, I've been informed many times you are, you know, in the pool to be called up for jury duty. I've only actually been called up once. And that was about, man, almost eight years ago. And it was uh, for a case down in St. George, Utah. And, you know, at that point, I at least understood enough about uh, about the power of the jury that I was looking forward to it. 
And and what I did, I don't know, according to, to what this guy was arrested for, you know, for jury tampering, I may have done something very similar as I sat there with those uh, prospective jurors that morning outside the courthouse waiting for us, uh, you know, our chance to go in and then go through the orientation and all of the stuff that you have to do before they start actually selecting a jury. Because I had a conversation with a number of people about the power of the jury. And it wasn't like I was set up like some street preacher and, you know, preaching salvation under the law, you know, to everybody. But uh, I just, you know, I struck up conversation with a few of the people around me, two of whom actually ended up being seated on the jury. I kind of felt bad. I was eliminated very quickly, and I don't know what it was. Maybe I, maybe I wore the wrong tie. I don't know. But for whatever reason, you know, I was, I was struck from the prospective juror pool very quickly. And I was, you know, back at work actually later that afternoon. Kind of a bummer. But what was really cool was two of the people I had spoken with about the jury, and it was nothing really, you know, I don't want you to get the idea something truly subversive was going on here. We just talked about how, isn't it interesting to get called up for jury duty, and, and what a privilege this is rather than, you know, a, a, some kind of an imposition. And, you know, we discussed how the jurors have the power to judge whether the law is being applied appropriately. And I'm going to tell you, in this case, it was it was the case of a guy who had lent a car to his friend. He was actually a Mexican national here in the U.S. illegally. So, you know, some people may take umbrage. Well, why why don't they just deport him? But um, because his friend borrowed his car and then uh, apparently was using it to transport uh, methamphetamine or something, you know, without the car owner's permission. Well, the friend got busted, the car was impounded, and because it was his car, uh, this guy who didn't speak a word of English was charged with drug trafficking. Now, they had to have a translator there in court. I mean, it, it was really something. But the bottom line was the jurors, as they discussed this case, as they discussed it when it went to trial, came to the conclusion that, yeah, if anything, he was guilty of stupidity or maybe just naivete, but... What he did did not rise to the level of convicting him of distributing drugs or or trafficking in drugs. And they rightly acquitted the guy. See, that made my heart happy. That, That made me actually glad to know that there were people on that jury who got it and who understood that, yeah, the law's there for a reason. And had he been, you know, some kind of a cartel, you know, operative out there trafficking drugs and and victimizing people, maybe that would have been the right thing to do to convict him. But in the case, as the facts were explained to them, yes, the drugs were found in his car. Yes, he admits it was his car. Yes, he admits he let his friend use his car. They still had the discretion to look at the case and to weigh whether the law was being applied correctly to him. And in this case, they said, no, it's not. And he was acquitted. I know that may rub some people the wrong way. They may feel like, well, gee, way to go. You did tamper with the jury or I I don't know. I can't really take responsibility. Some of these folks were pretty well informed. But that's why it's essential. You understand that when you are called to sit as a juror, you have the power to vote your conscience, regardless of what the judge tells you. You are representing the people. Therefore, you are among the most powerful entities in that courtroom. In fact, you are the most powerful entity because you are the jury. And the judge can't undo what you do, what you decide, rather. 
All right. Thus ends our lesson in civics for this segment. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We've got another segment straight ahead. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. Once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. And again, thank you for joining me today. All right, so I didn't watch the State of the Union address last night. I did watch some of the highlights. Thank you, Twitter, for making such things almost instantly available, as well as kind of the running commentary. And, you know, I, I purposely distance myself from a lot of things political just because I find that it really doesn't add that much value. And if, if you were looking for an example, you want to see just how petty... And, and how easily divided and tribal people can become. I think last night's State of the Union address probably was the, the most shining example you're going to find. I don't think that's a good thing, by the way. I think it actually uh, portends we, we have some very serious troubles ahead of us. And uh, we're, we're soon to reach a breaking point. I don't know what that's going to look like. But I can't see how the incivility that uh, was on display last night is going to help things. And I'm I'm... Taking both sides to task, I understand. You know what? You know, when Nancy Pelosi tore up the president's speech, you know, as soon as he finished speaking. Yeah, that was a pretty big, you know, F you to to him and and his speech Uh, when the president refused to shake her hand. You know, that was a pretty big snub right there, too. There's plenty of incivility to go around. The thing that struck me the most, though, is the arrogance of the political class. I think they they honestly believe their press releases that if it weren't for them, why the sun would not rise in the morning, the earth would stop spinning on its axis and all would be lost. I mean, you hear them talk about climate change and they really do believe this. Why, with with enough of your tax money, we can change the weather. Where does that arrogance come from and what justifies that degree of arrogance? Tom Piatak Writing for IntellectualTakeout.org. Actually, I take that back. He was, uh, he, this was originally published in uh, Chronicles, a magazine of American culture. Has an article titled, An Arrogance Justified by Nothing. And he has some points that are really worth considering. He says, it was a revealing moment. Former GOP consultant turned never Trumper Rick Wilson began ridiculing Trump supporters on CNN as credulous boomer rubes who believe Donald Trump is the smart one and y'all elitists are dumb. Muslim activist and New York Times contributor Wajahat Ali joined in mimicking the rube's supposed disdain for you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling and your reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. Well, Wilson kept pace, aping a southern accent to speak for the rubes, who supposedly can look with suspicion on your math and your reading and disbelief at anyone who can follow all those lines on the map. Now, this third-rate comedy routine had CNN host Don Lemon doubled over in laughter as Wilson and Ali dismissed tens of millions of Americans as beneath contempt. The cackling trio's open disdain for the so-called deplorables was matched by an immense self-regard and a belief that those who think like them have a monopoly on knowledge and sophistication. It was a crystalline display of arrogance. 
Now, Tom Piatak says arrogance is never appealing or justified, but it is sometimes understandable when someone is greatly superior in knowledge or skill. Neither Wilson nor Ali nor Lemon has ever accomplished anything on which to base their cocksure belief that they are smarter and more knowledgeable than Americans who support Trump. And he says Ali's disdain was especially grating. He says, like Ali, my paternal grandfather was born in America to immigrant parents. Unlike Ali, he never would have expressed contempt for Americans whose families had built the successful, prosperous and well-ordered society his parents had been allowed to enter. He was grateful to be in America and realistic about the role people with names like his had played in the American story. And the author here says the blunt truth is that America was a successful country before the first Slovak immigrant arrived. And America would have remained so even if no Slovak immigrant had ever been allowed to come. The same truth applies for immigrants from Pakistan or anywhere else. If Ali cannot summon up gratitude for the fact that his parents were allowed to come here and humility about the role Pakistanis played in creating America, he should get on the next flight to Karachi and bother us no more. He says the arrogance and mockery displayed in that CNN clip was far from unusual. It has become a defining characteristic of the social class with which Wilson, Ali, and Lemon identified themselves, the unmerited elites. Earlier incantations of America's elite class presided over a successful war for independence from the greatest empire on earth, the creation of the United States Constitution, and the, setting and, the settling rather and civilizing of the North American continent. They built up an economy that dwarfed all others, while also providing a broader level of prosperity than was ever thought possible. They produced a succession of technological advances that stunned the world, culminating in the still unequaled feat of multiple manned moon landings. And they created a culture that came to set the tone for the entire world, while also producing at its highest levels books, films, and music that attained the stature of art. So by contrast, the contemporary elite class has presided over widespread American decline, brought about in part by the succession of bad ideas they've embraced. These brainstorms include the ideas that children don't need par both parents and that women don't need men, that the widespread loss of U.S. manufacturing jobs is actually a good thing, that a foreign policy focused on nation building and projecting democracy into unstable authoritarian countries was superior to one focused on advancing American interests and concluding that America was better off without an identifiable ethnic core or religious tradition. And here the author says the result of such wishful thinking is now evident. Abroad, endless wars in the Mideast that have achieved little while costing trillions of dollars and thousands of lives. At home, millions of children raised without fathers and hundreds of once vibrant communities made economically stagnant while mortality rates of working-class whites have been increasing and unprecedented ethnic diversity is helping to fuel distrust in everyday life, as distinguished sociologist Robert Putman reluctantly concluded. Without the open and obvious failure of one elite project after another, Donald Trump would not be president, and our elite class would have far fewer people to sneer at, since most Americans would continue to accept its leadership. Well, despite its arrogance... Today's elites know far less than past generations. The days when educated people could be expected to know anything of substance about Homer and Virgil are now only a little less distant than, than, than the days when educated people could be expected to read those masterpieces in their original languages. 
Prestigious universities used to insist that graduates were at least familiar with the basics of Western civilization. Now, those universities are embarrassed by the heritage of the West. The latest example of this, Yale's decision to stop offering an introductory survey class on Western art and replace it with a new class dedicated to multiculturalism. The Yale News reported that current instructor Tim Berenger supported eliminating the course he taught because, quote, when there are so many other regions, genres, and traditions all equally deserving of study, putting European art on a pedestal, pedestal rather, is problematic, end quote. By the way, that article also reported that the new course will also consider art in relation to questions of <clears throat> gender, class, and race, <laughs> and that art's relationship with climate change would be a key theme. Well, I think they hit all the right talking points there. So bottom line, Yale's justification for eliminating the course may be fashionable, but, uh, fashionable, but it's also nonsense. The blunt truth that Yale is now afraid to teach is that more great art was created in one not especially large room in Rome, the Sistine Chapel, than on entire continents. There's a reason why Japanese television was willing to underwrite the expensive restoration of the Sistine Chapel, just as students of music around the world study Bach, Beethoven, and Mozart. Students of literature the world over study Shakespeare, and students of philosophy the world over study Plato and Aristotle. But for decades now, elite institutions have made decision after decision similar to Yale's, replacing classes, exposing students to the ideas and persons that formed Western civilization, to ones dedicated to relativizing and even subverting that civilization, that civilization rather, and increasingly obsessed with intersectionality, gender fluidity, and other ideas that are more or less transparently insane. He concludes by saying, as Harvard Law professor Adrian Vermeule noted after watching Wilson, Lemon, and Ali in action, it's perfectly rational for ordinary Americans to reject any possibility that this class should rule them, even if the alternative is Donald Trump. Wow. That is shockingly on target. And I think you can go back to the 2016 election and see that same dynamic at play. It's not that Donald Trump really was, you know, the clear, you know, head and shoulders champion of the people. But he was dang sure an alternative to more of the ruling class and Hillary Clinton, who represented the ruling class and its shut up. They explained attitude toward the citizenry in general. Now, like a lot of people, I've been pleasantly surprised by a number of things that Trump has done in the time he's been president. I've also been uh, predictably disappointed as there are some places where it's business as usual, and that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. But you have to wonder, all that arrogance portrayed by the political class, what, what justifies it? What have they done that would possibly give them that kind of stature? You and I both know the answer. And I'll say it if they won't, nothing, nothing at all. 